You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, as we're seated, we all stand together on the same ground before our Lord. And I just want to welcome you. Uh, Thank you for your presence here today. And to, in the name of God, waken and welcome your ears and your hearts to receive and listen to the message that is prepared for us today, that we get to dive into Scripture. While we stand even on the same ground, we are different in how we approach clothing. Some of us think that clothing is meant to be worn until it's threadbare and almost see-through. I'm describing myself here. To wear t-shirts until they're just about ready to fall off. Other people think that after 15 or 20 years, a t-shirt should be retired. Now, I don't know where you find yourself with clothes. Are you someone that's like, okay, well, I'm near a store. I'm going to go in. I need this. I got it. I'm done. Or do you go in and try on things and see what is just going to be just right for you? We're probably all a little bit different when it comes to clothes. And frankly, I'm just glad that you wore clothes today. I mean, wouldn't that be weird? I mean, that's weird. Can you imagine how tense and uncomfortable that would be? How the conversations would change? Well, not only would it be weird, but it, it gets one thinking about why. Why is it that humans wear clothes? I mean, what other animal wears clothes? Cartoon characters excluded. But what animals wear clothes? It's strange. And so I've kind of been thinking about the history of clothing, and of course I'm going to go back to Scripture, right? We go to Scripture to find out great insights for living. And it made me think of the ancient story of Adam and Eve, right? They were naked before God and one another and unashamed until they attempted to become like God And then suddenly they were able to see their own nakedness, right? And they needed clothes, and they were hiding in the bushes, and God comes to them and finds them, where are you? And they were afraid because they heard God. And one of the first things God does is make clothes for Adam and Eve. So I've wondered about the history of clothing. You know, when did it go from we've got to have clothing to hide ourselves from God to we've got to have clothing to protect ourselves from the elements, what's out there, to we've got to adorn ourselves in a fashionable way. I mean, clothing now matters. A hundred years ago, maybe even less, fashion and attention to your clothing was something that only elite people were focused in on. It was just for those who had the money and the time and the privilege to do it. But now... Now everyone's kind of aware of their own clothing and their sense of fashion. Even though we've become a more and more casual uh, society uh, with more and more casual Friday attire, being able to dress down and be more comfortable, more people working online or working at home, right, allows a time to kind of change the way that we dress. Do people have to see anything more than this on Zoom, you know, above or on Skype? Our clothing choices have changed, but we still put a lot of investment into them. 
We kind of think that they communicate something about our identity or who we are or who we want people to think that we are. Even when we're being casual, you gotta dress casual in just the right way. What am I trying to communicate with my clothing? Our clothing communicates meaning too, an identity. We know what a Walmart clerk looks like because of what they've dressed themselves as. Same thing at Target or a business person in a suit, right? All of these ways of labeling ourselves, of distinguishing ourselves, whether we're a Walmart clerk or a soldier or someone at Target, have set us apart from one another. Well, I am not here, believe it or not, to make some social commentary on fashion. I, I'm not interested in any debates. It's only normal for any culture to have its norms of what dress looks like and for those norms to change. My aim is for us to be more aware, to notice it today, because Paul takes up clothing as a metaphor in our letter today. I don't know what Paul was wearing. Maybe he was draped in a toga. Maybe he had some leather sandals on. Maybe some kind of head garb as he picked up a papyrus, picked up a pen, and began to write this ancient letter to us using the metaphor of clothes. In verse 12 of chapter 2, or chapter 3, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves. So as an elect, as a set-apart group of people, we're invited into this clothing of wearing the clothing of God, which gives us some kind of a responsibility. It probably would be a little goofy to think, all right, well, what would Jesus wear? Is there some kind of outfit that's more godly than another? Uh, maybe. But he's fighting us into something deeper. And my aim for us is to think not just about our physical clothing, but our spiritual clothing. How is it that we are adorned like Christ. You see, in the first century, this image that Paul is unpacking is a pretty graphic one. He's talked about baptism repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3, and in first century baptism, you may or may not know this, it was most often practiced nude. That's right, naked. You came to your baptism, and you stripped off your old clothes, and you had a new set of clothes to put on after your baptism. I mean, we can picture it. Uh, Paul describes it in, I mean, don't picture it too carefully, <laughs> but we can picture it. This stripping off in verse 9 of the old self with its practices and the putting on of the new self. This kingdom of God dress is not about what's in and what's out or even about religious rules and practices, but coming into the presence of God. Now, the verses that I want us to pay attention to are 15, 16, and 17. We'll look closely at them here at the front. And whenever we are looking at what's going on in our minds and in our hearts when it comes to clothing, sometimes there are voices in our heads that are telling us who we are, Maybe it's trying to prop ourselves up. Maybe it is tearing ourselves down. And I want you to think about that mental world 
where in our ears and in our minds, voices come into our brains and try to communicate to us a lot of noise about how those voices are rulers over us. They try to tell us how inadequate we are, or imperfect, or how we don't measure up. I'm talking about the noise of the news. I am talking about the static of the school hallway, the abuse that takes place as we walk up and down those halls, the insults from bosses and from coworkers, and the inner critic that is in our own voice. The echoes of these voices that we let stay, that try to tell us they're ruling over us. I want you to know that that racket is not real. And you don't have to let it into your mind. In verse 15, Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. In verse 15, this mental world is challenged by the presence and authority of Jesus. And Jesus is a gentle ruler. When he rules, he rules with peace. There's no earning Jesus' love. There's no earning what our identity is before God. We are told it. It's guaranteed for us by God. God has long ago made peace with our imperfections. He's over it. We need to push those voices out of our minds, out of our ears, and those images of other rulers that try to tell us who's in charge. Well, verse 15 is not the only place that helps us with this mental voice that might be in our head. In verse 16, look at what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If we want to push out those voices, Scripture is a great place to go. Scripture is a place to press aside and, and, and fight off these voices. In fact, if we want to replace them, putting the words of Scripture by memory and by repetition and reading helps edge out other voices and helps put truth in its place. It allows us to dismiss rumors, even when they're true. It allows us to step away from speculation that would drag us downward. It would invite us into a life where we are able to enter conversations where we disagree mightily with one another and yet still agree on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Where we enter into dialogues over major issues where we see them differently from one another, yet we agree on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, compromise is not a dirty word. It's a good word. Especially when we are surrendering together to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and embracing His downward trajectory as He shows us what Lordship looks like with His life. Verse 17, we get another thing. Letting the peace of Christ dwell in our hearts Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And this is a famous one, right? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you say, whatever you do, Jesus is Lord over it. 
Let, let that be a screen. Let it be a, a filter as the stuff that's on the inside of you tries to push and move to the outside. Make it go through that filter. Make it surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You, your words, humble before God. This allows us to approach one another in difficult conversations that we feel like we need to have as Christians, and yet go with humility and go with brotherly and sisterly love towards one another. This is service offered in the name of Jesus Christ that gets us off trying to do that service in the right way or think the right thing or come up with the exact right answer and understand that we serve the right Lord. We know who is in charge. We know that someone is Jesus. Well, whenever we feel like we've lost control on some of these voices, it's important for us to look at the peace of Christ dwelling in our minds, the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts, and doing everything in the Jesus Lordship way. Now, that's helpful, right? Those are things that we can do. And Paul, as he writes this in his toga, is certainly wanting to help us, but he goes even further. He takes these practical things and drives them deeper into our minds with real-world implications for our relationships. Now, he does it in ways that are kind of difficult for our ears to hear. These verses from uh, chapter 3, verse 18, to the beginning of verse, uh, the first verse of chapter 4, are called household codes. And that might not be a familiar term for you. Don't worry about it. These were very common in the ancient Near East, and they provide a formula for social ethics. How are husbands and wives supposed to relate to one another? How are slaves and masters supposed to relate to one another? Parents and children, and on it goes. There are rules of conduct. Now, this one is probably one of the older ones in the New Testament because it very closely mirrors one of the original ones from Aristotle. And as I hear it, and I'm wondering, why is Paul drawing upon Aristotle? Why would he want to mirror the patriarchal society of Aristotle in this day? Why would he reach, forward, reach backward to Aristotle and try to mirror that reality? I mean, after all, we've been reading this letter it's a letter that's focused in on renewal and transformation. So why would he push in ways that make our ears kind of shocked and stunned about the things that he says about women or to mention slavery or children? This is, this is difficult. So I want us to jump into this remembering the verses that we just read. From chapter 3, verse 12, all the way down to where we are in verse 17. A little bit of background. First off, what is the scene that Paul is writing to? What's going on? Please remember that Christianity is not a mainstream religion. There are not churches like this. There are not pews. Christianity was thought of kind of a strange new spirituality, a new religion, an offshoot renegade Judaism. In fact, the rumor was these people eat the flesh of their leader. That's right. They drink the blood of their leader. In fact, they're not even, they're atheistic. They believe in only one God. Can you believe that? 
I mean, everybody that's a believer in God believes in gods, many gods. Christianity's not mainstream. People are kind of looking sideways at Christians and wondering if they want their families to mix with these Christian folks. They're a little weird. They're fringy. So Paul's reality is he's writing to Christianity when it's perceived quite differently. And a second thing is that he writes trying to kind of help give Christianity some footing, a place to stand. Whenever they think that it's a threat to the social norms, Paul says, oh, no, no, let me pull out Aristotle. Let me show you that we are really good with our households. We are paying attention as good husbands and wives and as servants in the household and as children. This is not a threat. This is something that can be endorsed. We're not weird. But the third part of this that you need to know about is how different what Paul does is from what they're used to hearing. There's a part of this that doesn't quite fit in. Paul moves in a different direction from the way these household codes typically go. Take women. Paul says women be in subject or wives be in subjection to your husbands. And I didn't see any elbows. I, I got out of the pew really quick. But some husbands, sometimes this is a place, and or in Ephesians, oh yeah, men, men, husbands, right? Well, Paul says in subjection, but he doesn't use the word obedience, which is used for children or even of slaves. That's different. That stands out. In fact, if you were to read Philo, another contemporary writer at this time, he emphasized the servitude of women. Or Josephus, the historian that most people have heard of from the first centuries, would talk about women being inferior to men. That's hard for us to believe, it's hard for us to hear because we're in a different time. We're in a different place. So for Paul to go so far as to say, husbands love your wives, husbands and fathers don't exasperate your children, that doesn't fit. The male head of the household had absolute tyranny over the household. In fact, even over adult children, even if they're not in the home, he had legal authority over them. There is an absoluteness to the power of the, the head of the household. And his, his rule is exclusive. And so for Paul to say, be just, be fair, that's a stretch in a different direction from what they're used to. So what Paul does is say, Christianity is not a threat. In fact, some of his harshest words are for masters. Take care of your servants, right? Don't run them over. You have a heavenly master. This is not the norm. This is not what is expected. But Paul walks that balance quite well and shows that Christianity is not a threat, that there is new freedom in Jesus Christ, and he does it by pointing to the lordship of Jesus. Because when we serve Jesus as Lord, it transforms everything. Everything. Christians view the world differently than Romans did, and even than the way that Jews viewed the world. And the heart, or the interpretive lens, gets at this fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that fact must alter and transform how we treat one another in relationship. There's no hierarchy except under the lordship of Jesus Christ.
We are all being renewed in the image of the Creator. Verse 10 of chapter 3. We are all in the same place before God because Christ is all and in all. Verse 11. You see, women and slaves and even children have a newfound status in the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you keep reading to the end of this chapter, verse 15, you'll find out about Nymphia and the household church that she has. That's pretty unusual for a woman to be designated as the head of the household and this is the church that meets in her home. It's transforming how women are viewed even in that society. So Paul can speak to her and her house church and at the same time invite people into these new norms inside of the household. Or what about Onesimus that gets mentioned later as in the greetings at the end of chapter 4? He doesn't refer to Onesimus. Do you remember who he is? Little little book about Onesimus and Philemon. It's just one chapter. He doesn't call Onesimus, oh, the runaway slave. He calls Onesimus the faithful and beloved brother. Wow. When you come inside the church, slaves and masters, women and men, who knows who might be in charge over you because you know who is your heavenly master, right? So you better treat one another well outside of the gathering of the assembly because we have a heavenly master. So, in 2020, our challenge is a little different from Paul's. Right? We almost have an opposite calling where we live in a society that has destroyed slavery, even though we're still living out the effects of slavery. We would not want to see the church say, yes, slavery is a good thing. We want to endorse it. We would not want to endorse men ruling over women or even with our children, a, they ought to just be seen and not heard. They're not really even human until they reach the level of adulthood. It allows Paul to speak very pointedly in a way that challenges those who are in charge to live differently. See, I don't think that these end up being some kind of universal imperatives. They don't end up being something like the Ten Commandments. Remember that Paul is writing these letters to specific churches and specific environments and cities, and he's trying to address specific issues under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's trying to push those masters to behave more kindly under the lordship of Jesus. To push those dads to behave less provocatively toward their children. And the heavenly master that is over them should be at the forefront of all of our minds. The church just has to decide whether or not we're going to be involved in maintaining the curse of the fall. Are we going to be the kind of people that want to dig up slavery or push down and declassify women? Do we want to keep emphasizing the curse? Or are we going to live in light of our heavenly master in a way that's fitting and appropriate now? It's almost like we don't know what clothes we're supposed to put back on. We don't have a plan. And we just keep putting on the same old clothes and say, well, that's just the way it is. No. Under the Lordship of Christ, we're called to something new. 
I don't know if you heard years ago about the three guys in Spokane, Washington, who had a little prank planned in an early morning in January in Washington. They went into a Denny's and all they had on was ski masks and tennis shoes. And they, these three guys had their fun. They ran all around that Denny's and went back to their car and their car had been stolen. <laughs> the plan on the backside to cover their backside, nah, it wasn't working, <laughs> right? So the police report says that they found these guys hiding, trying to keep warm and covered. And the report says they were doing none of it well. In the kingdom of God, we have to understand that we are taking on new clothes. And we are people that deeply value Scripture. We want it to inform who we are. And we want to have a voice in this world that makes sense. To help people not be distracted by old ways of practicing. But to be drawn into what really covers us. What really cloaks us. These five things about compassion, about in verse, uh, down in verse 12, compassion and kindness, humility and meekness and patience, and above all of these things, love. That's the all-purpose garment. That is the one we're supposed to shroud ourselves in. Eugene Peterson calls it the all-purpose garment, and I don't think he's wanting us to think in terms of socks or underwear, things that we put on all the time. No, those things are hidden. But what do people see? What is the first thing that people recognize with Christians? And it should be love. That should be how we are known. The crowning virtue. And it's helpful for us to look at this in light of verses 12-17. through 17, So that we can be the kind of people who don't listen to the many voices in our heads, but seek the peace of Christ, who dwell in the Word, the living Word of Christ, and who, whatever we do, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, crowning it with the virtue and the characteristic and the practice of love. Let's pray. God, we praise You for being such a merciful God. For being the word of love in our lives. For showing us what lordship looks like in Jesus' downward descent, surrendering his life and his body to the powers that be. Would you help us in all of our relationships, whatever they may be, whatever status we have in life, to take on the lordship of Christ so that we can do what tasks you've given us to do in your name and knowing that it's being done to your honor and your glory. Father, thank you that we all stand on the same ground together, ground that you have made. And we pray that you will call us higher, call us towards the exalted Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.